you got Problems that you ought to be concerned with Hoorah! You don't know how you're supposed to earn it Or what to do with it or how to keep it You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret But you're not the only one Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun Now your healing has begun It's bad with money with Gabby Dunn Hi Deadbeats, it's I, Gabby Dunn And this is Bad With Money. If wealth is health, as they say, then the opposite is absolutely true. Poverty is sickness. Consider this. There was a study that just came out where researchers make the case that raising the minimum wage by 10% would literally lower the suicide rate. And I fucking believe it. From personal experience and from everything I've ever read about the effects of poverty on people's mental health. The kind of basic struggle for survival that the media portrays as only an issue in poor countries is a reality for millions of people right here in the United States. And a lot of what we do to combat it is tone deaf as hell. Remember the last sociology professor I interviewed on this show whose writing blew my mind? Rachel Sherman of the New School for Social Research spent time interviewing New Yorkers so rich they couldn't even tell you what they spent on their $25,000 a month Amex bill. My guest this week works on the complete opposite end of the spectrum. Princeton University professor Catherine Eden is the co-author of $2 a Day, Living on Almost Nothing in America. It's one of my favorite books about money of all time. Maybe one of my favorite books of all time, which is going to sound weird when we get into how depressing the information in it is. I was riveted reading it. For her research, Catherine spoke to people in America living on that $2 a day from the title. And you know how many there are living on two fucking dollars a day? 1.3 million American households, including 3 million children. That is outrageous. Catherine has spent decades interviewing people who exist in the harshest conditions of extreme poverty. These people are exhausted because they're thwarted at every turn with humiliation, impossible standards for betterment, and dehumanization to the extreme. The people who make the laws fail to realize that they aren't fixing anything. They're treating those in poverty with expectations they would never place on other people. So what are the poor doing to actually survive? Selling plasma and hair is huge. Sex work is prevalent. Selling their food stamps at huge discounts just to have some money for other necessities. What would actually help? Access to abortion, help for victims of domestic violence, addiction counseling. Those would all be great. But instead of doing the hard thing, people in power are reactive rather than proactive. And we know this because we see it all the time. There are tons of myths about poverty that need to be debunked, that we as middle and upper class people need to stop believing. Myths like poor people are just worse at budgeting. They're actually more likely to track every dollar. Or myths like absent black dads being the real problem. They're not. Black fathers are actually statistically more likely than white or Latinx dads to be regular presences in their kids' lives. Myths like helping the poor would bankrupt the country. Welfare, you know, cash assistance to poor people, is about half of 1% of the federal budget. Defense spending, meanwhile, is on track to reach a trillion dollars before too long. It is 17% of the budget. So if anything is bankrupting us, it's war. There are arbitrary and unfair rules we don't even know about that make it hard as fuck for poor people to have any sort of economic mobility, including insanely gendered regulations regarding children's bedrooms, which we'll get to later in the episode. Many of these people are exhausted. Their pride and human dignity has been shattered. And that generational trauma lasts longer through their children, through their children's children, and permeating entire communities. 
The situations Catherine talks about are nothing short of tragedies, and we as a country should be deeply ashamed. You know, I sort of discovered, I guess, this category of, this new category of poverty in in 2010 when I was spending the summer in Baltimore on a completely different study. But uh, because I was going into low-income households, I started meeting people that were living on virtually no cash income. I was I was stunned. I'd been studying poverty for 25 years, but here they were. And uh, so Ashley was the first woman I met. She was a mom of a one-month-old, a 19-year-old. And when I came to her house, she had no food in the refrigerator, uh, no uh, in the uh, in the cupboards, no baby formula. There was no furniture in the house. You know, depression just hung in the air like a pall. So uh, that's when I started really wondering whether, you know, in modern America, in a country we wouldn't even think to look for two dollar a day poverty, whether it had grown. And and we went to the best nationally representative data sources and found that it had. But what's interesting is it's sort of an equal opportunity condition. You see single moms um, disproportionately rep- represented, as you might expect. But you also see married couple families. You see blacks, whites, Latinos. There is a slight concentration in the southeast where the safety net is weakest in the Appalachian Mountains and in the Deep South. But really— Everywhere there are these families, and I only studied families with children, I should say. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are many people living on less than $2 a day who do not have children. Actually, there are more of them than there are people with children. But because I was interested in the legacy of welfare reform, I, I focused on uh, the roughly 3.4 million children who spend at least uh, a quarter of the year living below that threshold. Your research showed like 1.5 million American households, and and yeah. those households include the the children. What was the original? Like, how has that grown? Well, uh, in the early 90s, at the on the eve of welfare reform, this was a very rare condition. We had a, a pretty robust cash safety net, and it started to erode a little bit in the 1990s with um, the welfare reform experiments that preceded the 1996 landmark welfare reform. But most families, uh, poor families with children, were being touched by the nation's cash safety net. So in the late 80s, that figure was about 80%. It had dropped to about 70% by the early 90s, but now it's it's at about 20%. So we saw the, the number of folks and families with children in extreme poverty growing from only about 600,000 households at any given time to about 1.5 million, so more than a doubling. So, yeah, I wanted to ask about safety nets because I, I watched a bunch of interviews with you and you were talking about supporting work versus those who can't work. So what what is the current safety net and, and how has it changed? So this is a great question. Most Americans follow the poverty line and they, you know, how they think about poverty depends on that threshold. But all the action is actually going on within the poverty line. In the last 20 years, we've created a new system uh, that benefits one group while leaving uh, another group worse off um, Mm -hmm. than ever before in recorded history, uh, at least here in the United States. So if you, uh, since 1994, and this is sort of the good part of of welfare reform, it's definitely um, glass half empty uh, story. Yeah. If you, thanks to um, initiative by Bill Clinton— we added a 
tax credit very quietly to the tax code that ensures now that if you're able to work full-time, full year at the minimum wage and you have a dependent child, you will not be poor. Mm -hmm. The problem is that um, we instituted this policy, you know, in the in the late 1990s when the economy was incredibly strong. Mm-hmm. So what we didn't notice is that the job market was starting to fall apart. So uh, we sort of put all of our eggs in one basket in making work pay. And in the meantime, of course, we we ended the federal entitlement to cash welfare for people who got it because they can prove they were needy. Mm-hmm. So our assumption was, well, we'll get everybody to work, and then we won't have to worry about people who, for some reason, can't work full-time, full year. So while the safety net improved for the full-time working poor, it actually is all but dead for those who can't manage for reasons of the labor market or for reasons of of uh, personal struggles or disability, or disability. right? Yep, yep. So, so those people are left with virtually no cash income, whereas those who who are able to work. Now, the uh, the other thing about work, of course, is um, over the twenty years since welfare reform, it's been harder and harder to find and keep that full time, full year job. Mm-hmm. I mean, so what do you mean by cash income? Just like the definition of it, yeah. So we count everything that the that the that the government captures. Uh, we count if you get gifts from family and friends. We count lottery winnings, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, wages, unemployment insurance. Uh, you name it, we count it because we wanted to. You know, a good practice in social science is to make the most conservative estimate possible. Mm-hmm. So um, anything that someone is willing to tell an interviewer about their sources of income, we count. Mm -hmm. What we don't count, of course, is food stamps, and we don't count Medicaid. Got Uh, it. Last time I checked, you couldn't pay your, your rent with your Medicaid card. And now back to the show. So you said these families live mostly in the Southeast where we don't have a safety net. About 40% of them do, but the rest of the 60% are all over the nation. And there are almost no states that have a strong safety net now. Um, the only states that have, a, that have something left of what they had 20 years ago are Vermont, New York, Minnesota, and California. Uh, in many states, uh, less than 10% of poor families with children have any access uh, to the cash safety net. And uh, Wyoming, I think there are only a couple of hundred families now on the rolls. Um, there are only about nine nine million adults on the rolls at any given time, half of them in California and New York. Uh, so across the rest of the 48 states, we only have a half a million adults on wel- welfare at any given time. So this is just uh, a very, very small – what was a, a major safety net program is now in much of the country virtually non-existent. And that doesn't mean uh, that people are better off. It just means that they have less access. Right. Yeah. So if you look at that compared to the poverty rate, Mm -hmm. and even if you look within states, what's happened is, you know, the program was designed to catch you when you fell. Mm -hmm. Right. And what has happened is as the economy after 2000 began to weaken, and even through the recession, the numbers on wealth, cash welfare continue to Decline, decline, decline. There's a tiny little uptick during the recession, not nearly 
matching the number of folks that fell into hard times. But uh, this is just, it's become completely disconnected now from the needs of poor families. How did, yeah, you talked about people that were hit hard. Well, how did how did most of these people get into these, like the desperate situation that they're in? I mean, you tell me, but I imagine it's a mix of like disability or, you know, something, uh, I don't know. How did yeah. they get that way? So the first way, the, the most common route onto $2 a day poverty is actually a job. Mm. Uh, what's happened in the labor market is really pernicious if you don't have a college degree. It's very hard now to find full-time hours. Often, you don't get your schedule in advance. Uh, your schedule moves around, so you're n- not able to take a second job. You might have 30, 35 hours one week, 10 hours the next. How are you going to pay uh, for child care? Wage theft in the United States has grown, as have unsafe work conditions. So I'll just tell you a little story about how this all goes together. Sure. Uh, Jennifer Hernandez, mother of Caitlin and Cole, was, um, you know, she was moving through a a series of homeless shelters when I first met her. And she was so determined to get a job. You know, the homeless shelter had a special program where they'd give you a one-year rent subsidy if you got a job. And on the very last day that she was eligible, she got a job at Chicago City Custodial Services, and she really loved this job. It was full-time, which is rare, and uh, paid over $8 an hour, also pretty rare. Uh, but she loved the the sense that she was making a difference, you know, seeing an apartment go from um, from dirty to sparkling clean. She was cleaning office buildings in, mm-hmm. in the loop that of Chicago that were changing tenants. Well, into the fall, um, Chicago City lost all those contracts, and she began cleaning foreclosed homes in the south side of Chicago. Uh, no heat, uh, no water, no electricity. Many of them were full of mold. She was a severe asthmatic, as were her kids. Mm-hmm. Um, literally, <laughs> you know, the, the crew was was freezing uh, mm-hmm. as they were cleaning these apartments, and she began to get sick. And then as she uh, got sick, her children uh, got sick. And two times during uh, that early winter, uh, once for Jennifer and once for Cole, there was a trip to an emergency room because of an asthma attack. So as her kids, of course, couldn't go to school, she couldn't go to work because she would have lost custody of them to CPS if she had left them home alone. And her and her boss began to dock her from 30 hours to 30 to 25 to 15 and then to 10, uh, judging her an unreliable worker. So, so finally, uh, Jennifer had to quit that job with only three months left on that housing subsidy uh, because it had taken her four months to find the Chicago City job. And she knew she had to be rested and well uh, to, uh, to attempt another foray into the labor market. See, these are the types of stories that I feel like people who've never experienced uh, poverty, like, just don't, can't imagine or can't connect to. Yeah, it's it, it, just one, sometimes it's just one little thing that sets off this spiral. Yeah, of course. I mean, I, I haven't met anyone that I've interviewed or talked to on that side of things who who hasn't had an a, a extenuating circumstance beyond what you could even imagine. Yeah. Um, but it's like an empathy gap, which we've talked about a few times on the show. So how how are the poor actually surviving? So it's interesting. I wrote my first book uh, prior to welfare reform, and I spent my ton- the decade of my twenties touring <laughs> touring the United States and talking to low income single moms about how they made ends meet. 
because even back then, welfare didn't pay enough to survive. And the the three main uh, strategies were selling hair, selling meals, and taking in borders. Mm -hmm. None of our families were able to engage in those strategies because none of them were stably housed. Right. And that's a real difference between the old days and now. Uh, When families did have a safety net, they were not Uh, experiencing the extreme housing instability that we see today. Uh, We can see in statistics a dramatic growth in in, uh, homelessness among families with school-aged children. And if you don't have that stable base, you can't set up an informal beauty salon. Uh, you can't. You don't have a kitchen that you can that you can sell meals out of. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all of those strategies aren't available to you. So you're really stuck with scavenging. So um, Jennifer, for a while, um, collected tin cans. She made about ten hour uh, ten dollars a day for for ten hours of work. About sixty per, sixty cents a pound uh, for the scrap she collected. Um, she, like everyone in our sample, uh, tried donating plasma. That was actually the most lucrative uh, strategy that anyone was able to to try, but it leaves a lot of people physically debilitated. And oh, only, yeah, only, and you have to yeah. qualify. Yeah, you have to qualify, which is tough. Um, one of our moms, uh, who was, whose sole source of income was from once-a-week plasma donations, uh, had to eat protein bars provided by the plasma clinic so she could pass. She was this tiny little 111-pound mm-hmm. woman, but her heart would just race thinking, you know, is my blood pressure going to be too high? She'd have to walk around the plasma clinic taking deep, calming breaths so, so, she, could, so she could get, you know, the $25 that was the only cash her family was going to have. For sure. Uh, for that week. Um, we did see um, selling sex. Uh, you know, Madonna had a friend who paid her bills. Uh, that friend later tried to molest her daughter, Brianna. Um, another ubiquitous strategy, though not common among the poor generally, was selling food stamps. Because if you have no cash, you've got to buy socks and underwear, and you've got to pay the the electric bill. Alva Mae Hicks and in uh, the Mississippi Delta, sold sold uh, about six hundred dollars of her food stamps uh, for a return of about three hundred dollars. That's the going rate in uh, the Delta, mm-hmm. um, just so she could keep the lights and electric, you know, the le- electricity on in a in a climate that had ranged from uh, nine degrees to one hundred and nine degrees in the past six months. So these were some of the things people did to to scrape by. Yeah, there's such a disconnect between what's illegal and legal and what, like, the realities of people's lives are. Because I can't help but think, I mean, you're talking about the, the, you know, I can't help but think that, like, access to abortion or, like, access to, to better resources for domestic violence and, like, all this kind of st- addiction counseling, like, all this stuff would dovetail into how these people got into these predicaments. Yeah, it's really interesting. So we are not doing prevention, and instead we're triaging after the damage has already been done. And it's really striking. At at a certain point, it becomes very, very hard to help people who've been at this for a while. You know, Ray McCormick, probably the the star of the book, um, is a young woman living in Cleveland with her daughter, Azara. She became uh, $2 a day poor at the age of 12 when her dad died and her mother Deserted her in a Cleveland apartment and fled, fled for the the hills of um, Tennessee with a lover, 
And so she's been in and out of this situation all of her life, sometimes staying with this group of fictive kin who were motorcycle buddies of her father. But she's kind of a survivor. She She's um, three years at Kmart, loves the job, even though they never give her full-time hours. And then Kmart closes down because Super Walmart comes to town. And and she's she's had this child, and she's you know, determined to support her child herself. She she feels a great deal of shame about uh, being on any kind of government program. So she says, "I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be the employee of the month out at Walmart." Mm-hmm. You know, and she she observes what all these other cashiers are doing. They're slowing down with the produce items, and so she writes down the barcodes to all the produce items, and then at night uh, she talks these into her her recording device on her phone, and she puts her earphones on as she sleeps and puts this on repeated play. So she's listening to these barcodes all night while she <laughs> sleeps. And sure enough, she gets um, chosen as employee of the month twice in the first six months she's at Walmart. But she's sharing a truck um, with George and Camilla, these, these sort of fictive kin who are basically – renting her a room in the attic of this abandoned house they've mm-hmm. um, they've jerry-rigged to have some level of, you know, electricity. They're sort of stealing electricity from the pole, and, and they've offered to let her use their truck, but she gives all her money to them for these two basic resources with only enough left over, you know, to put gas in the car. So on Friday, she puts gas in the car, fills it up, uh, she goes away to see her, to see a friend. On Monday, she gets into the truck to drive it to work, and it's empty. Uh, George and Camilla decided to do errands over the weekend. And when she furiously marched into the house demanding money, they claimed they didn't have any. So she calls her manager, you know, and the manager just says, Honey, if you can't find a way to get to work, don't bother coming back. Ugh. See, you yeah. Because he's, he's got a 1,000 people who with less complicated lives who who want that job. So um it's a common story, you know, you 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 you're vulnerable anyway. Um you may be a dedicated worker and and again work is permeating the lives of these folks. It's just not full-time full year, so they they dip into these spells of extreme poverty. But then what happened to Ray is over time, you know, in this situation, her mental health started to crumble. Yes. Um, at one point, I think she had five different diagnoses. Her physical health started to crumble. Her teeth uh, started to rot out. In fact, she pulled them all out, all of her upper teeth, out by herself. Uh, and and so, in the last in the last few years, she really hasn't been able to to work anymore. She's too proud to go on disability. She refuses to apply, but yet uh, she's stuck between a rock and a hard place because she's at at uh, the medical center three or four times a week, uh, just dealing with all of these health crises. You know, there's a picture of her in the in the local corner store of when she was 16. She is a stunning young woman in this picture. And now, just 10 years later, she's a, a toothless woman who looks twice her age. So one of the most striking parts of the book to me that was just like so moving and so um, painted such an accurate picture is when Madonna and her and her daughter and she's waiting in line at the welfare office, I believe, uh, yes. and she's the like the last person and she gets in and they're like, 
it's too late for this day or whatever it is. Like, can you yeah. can you explain that story? And also, I think it highlighted so perfectly, like, the exhaustion. Because I, I relay that story in my book, and I say, you know, I, obviously I come from uh, a privileged place over these people. And, like, if I have an awkward interaction with a grocery store clerk, I'm like, I can never go back. But, like, yes. these people, like, so can you explain the situation here and how it pertains to just beaten down mental health problems and exhaustion. So this is a great story, and I can can give you a little outtake that's actually not in the book. I was the friend who accompanied uh, Madonna to the welfare office that morning. When I suggested to her that she think about TANF or asked her if she thought about TANF, she's the one that told me, they don't give that out anymore. And I said, well, I think they do. So um, convinced her to go with me down to the welfare office. And of course, we arrive at the time that the building opens. We're like right on time. And TANF is temporary assistance yeah. for needy families? T- temporary assistance for needy families. So this okay, is a, great. the place you go to get cash welfare. Right. And remember, she's the woman is homeless. Yes. Right? She and her daughter are homeless. They have nothing. So we get there and uh, at right at opening, and there is a line already formed all the way around the block. Mm-hmm. So we get in that line, and we stand in that line all the way up to, uh, I believe, 2 o'clock, mm-hmm. if my memory serves, when uh, when they decide they're not going to take any class or whatever, whatever it is. And what was really fascinating is uh, we were right next to this woman who, you know, we started talking with, and she said, yeah, I was trying to get—I've been here a lot. I was trying to get my older son on Medicaid. Uh, he had HIV— Finally, the card came in the mail, but he died the, the previous day. And she said, yeah. now I'm here trying to get disability for my other son who has cancer. So we, you know, we waited in that line, finally entering the building, you know, this pea green waiting room with these metal chairs. Um, I will say that the that they were very courteous to us, but I wonder if that's because, you know, I was— I was there, uh, a sort of a white woman. Exactly. Um, yeah. But, you know, even though we had done everything right um, and played by the rules when we got up to the front, you know, we were told we had to come back another day. And I argued with the women. I tried to advocate for Madonna. And uh, there was no use. There was just no way, even though she had waited uh, most of the day, uh, that she was going to be seen. And, and then the caseworker says, why don't you try arriving a little earlier next time? So mm-hmm. it was quite the irony. And of course, you know, I mean, Madonna just felt such shame. Here she was standing outside the welfare office for anyone, anyone to see, anyone to drive by and just observe her in this in this place, you know, begging for help from the government. Yeah, I mean, she, if I remember reading it right, she cries, right? Like it just she becomes— cries. It just becomes this thing. I think, and I also, she doesn't she say she's not going back? Yes, and, and she has never gone back, although her homelessness has continued. I mean, this, this family has had such a rough, uh, a rough time for her, too. You know, she's, she did, she, she was able to eventually, after a couple of years, get a job at Payless Shoes. Yeah. You know, here's somebody, just a few credits from a college degree. 
Oh, but you can't get full-time hours, and the family can never get out of the homeless shelter because they just, she can't make enough to rent an apartment. The housing, the access to housing part of this, this could be a whole nother episode because it is so uh, impossible. Yeah. Um, and also, I think, was this in your book, the the thing about there's like rules about a boy and a girl sharing a room? Yes. Can you explain um, that? Because that blew my mind. Yeah. So some people have said to me, wouldn't it be great if you could provide studios for families? And it turns out that um, in uh, most jurisdictions, a boy and a girl of a certain age can't share a bedroom. So you really have to have a two-bedroom apartment. Or if there's a mother with a son, you have to have a two-bedroom apartment. And so if you have a housing voucher, you're um, obliged um, to play by these rules. And if child welfare would investigate you, you know, many poor parents feel afraid of uh, what they call baby snatchers. I, that's a maybe an unfair word to apply to, to child welfare, but um, that is nonetheless what they're often called. And, and so, you know, we're forcing families to consume a level of housing or go homeless. And we don't have a lot of strategies in between to help families find less you know, ways of consuming less housing and staying housed. Yeah, because they, they're worried that they'll come take the children away. Yep, that's right. This is so, I mean, also so arbitrarily tied into gender. I can't. I can't. Right. Um, yeah, that bit of information was, I mean, it, it is like an Ouroboros of, you're not, sorry, you're not, there's nothing we can, you're not able to, yeah. Even if you follow all the rules, it's like, no, you're not able. So what's interesting about that is, you know, I also I often say being poor is just a, an, an experience of being constantly rejected. You know, like that moment of Madonna mm-hmm. bursting into tears, feeling rejected. Social psychologists now tell us that those experiences literally affect us physiologically, even trivial rejection like when somebody stops pa- passing you a ball in a game of catch, can have an effect on a on a person's body um, that's similar to being punched in the gut. Mm-hmm. So, and uh, social psych- psychological studies have also shown that folks who experience rejection are less efficacious. They have uh, lower lower scores on working memory, all of the things that people need to get up in the morning and go try to find work and slog through the day and pay their bills are actually reduced when people lack the feeling that they're affirmed and that they're part of society, that they're valued. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it it, it totally destroys like your mental health and also physical health too. And I think, I mean, I can't imagine the situation with Madonna, like of course you don't want to go back. You're treated like subhuman. Yeah, it's not worth it. Literally, she would rather sit in that empty shelter all weekend without without anything to eat than experience that humiliation again. And more and more people have made that decision, and that's uh, part of the reason why welfare has declined. It's it's quite a trade-off when people feel that you know they have to sacrifice their basic dignity for a couple hundred bucks. Of course. And and I think people that have never been on welfare are like, why don't you just do that? But also the, you know, the pride element, like the marketing for marketing, but you know what I mean? Of well, yes. of welfare, like the, uh, the pride in not being on welfare, the pride in not taking the money that like could be offered to you 
is is also such a thing, I think, because the messaging yeah. of welfare has been like, you are lazy, which is yes. which is has been proven not true. Yeah. So we've been um, uh, doing this thing in the United States for 400 years. We've been operating under the assumption that the only way to reduce poverty is to make it as miserable as possible. Oh, so, and yes. We actually have no evidence that that's effective and quite a lot of evidence to the contrary. You know, what, what the people in our book wanted to do more than anything else is they wanted, they wanted work. Mm-hmm. They wanted work that allowed them to pay their bills and raise their families. Um, but even, even more than that, they wanted to contribute. Uh, oh, I was yeah. really, really struck. I, one of the women who's not in the book was from Chattanooga, Tennessee, and she's got an incredible, just an incredible story of woe and uh, maybe one of the toughest stories that I heard in the in the course of this study. And I was sitting with her at a Burger King at the very end, the last time that I saw her before she was going to take the boys and try her like in, luck in Charlotte. And we were sitting there, and I said, well, you know, what was it like to participate in this research? And she sort of paused, and then she looked at me, and she said, if my story can help even one person, it will have been worth it. Yeah, they're not lazy. They, it's not like they don't want to contribute to society. I mean, the messaging is always like the welfare queen, the person who, you know, just uh, is is happy to take this money and and wants to live a life of leisure. I don't really understand the, that. Right. Well, this myth has been around for 400 years. It's very striking. Poverty's your fault. Just work harder. People who are poor are, are immoral. And that's a part of why poverty is so hard in the United States. Um, you know, I worked um, in the Bloomberg School of Public Health at Johns Hopkins for a while, and so my colleagues were studying poverty all over the world, and and I gave a talk about $2 a day. Mm-hmm. And people were rushing up to me afterwards saying, oh, my gosh, what you study is so much worse than what we see. And I'm like, wait a minute, you know, you're in Malawi or you, you're in places that I can't even imagine, and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and sort of Make, trying to make sense of that experience, uh, what I realized is to be poor in America is to be pushed out, is to be pushed out of society, to ridiculed, to be forced. ignored. Yes, yeah. So the shame, shame is the is the central element of being poor in America. This perpetual feeling of shame. Yes, guilt and trauma and shame come up a lot because. I, I, you're right. It's this thing of pull yourself up by your bootstraps, which we've talked about a lot on this show. And so if you can't do that, you're defective in some way. And yeah. you feel that yourself and other people feel that about you. And I think it That's turns right. into this generational trauma that is just so long lasting. I mean, I, uh, I talked to a bunch of, of teenage girls in Chicago, outside Chicago, and a lot of them, it was like their parents, them. I mean, it, it's just, it just permeates everything. You know, it, it is, um, what's amazing is that people still hold on so strongly to the American dream, yeah. even given all that we've done to them. You know, one, one uh, aspect of the book that really shocked me is how, is how that belief persisted. Mm-hmm. You know, not many of the people in the book are doing well. Um, a few have have achieved a modicum of security. But what I really worry about 
uh, with the $2 a day port, which of course we haven't had historically since we've had a robust safety net prior to 1996, is that people will lose that belief. They will lose the sense that that America is for them and yes. that there's actually hope. And and if that happens, I think we're we're in real trouble because you know, the people in the book were really they wa- they were wanting to play by the rules. And they yes. were trying over and over again to do that. Uh, if word gets out that that doesn't work anymore for a larger and larger segment of people, I don't know what that's going to look like. I know. It's a balance of of them needing to have that hope. But also, I mean, it seems to me like they're more angry at themselves and they should be more angry at the system. Yeah, yeah that's such a good insight. Yeah. So— so what might happen, right, is is you could see a poor people's movement, and that can be good, and, and it can be really costly to the people that participate. But, you know, if you, yes. if you look at it at polling it's data— It's It's exhausting. I mean, it, yeah. would, it would take the people that aren't—I always say this, like, the people are like, well, why don't the, the poor, you know, rise up? And it's like, they're tired. <laughs> right. Like, we should be the ones doing it. For—yes, on, on the behalf of all of us, um, you know, there's this great— H&R Block commercial a couple of years ago, um, it's, you know, it's advertising uh, because the people who won under welfare reform usually get their tax refunds through H&R Block or one of its competitors. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it had this slogan, I've got people. Mm-hmm. And many of our folks, you know, had gotten the AHC here and there because they'd worked. And, and they say this spontaneously, you know, I've got people. Uh, but a more profound part of the ad was, our people are your people. And it had a, a rainbow of uh, H&R Block employees smiling, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And this was so resonant with people because here was a group of middle-class professionals saying to, to you know, um, struggling families, you are part of us. It was like in this ad, people love going to H&R Block, by the way, even though it Oh, I used money. to. Oh, I used to go. Oh, I <laughs> yeah. I would go and dump an accordion folder of receipts on a lady's desk and go help me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there's this, you know, it's like you're being consecrated as a citizen because you're, you know, H and R Block is for workers. You're being seen. So, you're being. Yeah. You're being. I mean, I. You're right. It's like if we if we just give them some visibility and some being yeah. seen, like your book, like this podcast. It's like that. That's help. You know. Right. They're not on the fringe. They're not invisible. You know, I wanted wanted to say one more thing. Um, early in my career, I actually looked at how people spent the money when they yes. did get welfare. And I compared, um, you know, people who were second generation on welfare and those who weren't. People who were in public housing and those who weren't and African-Americans and Latinx mm-hmm. people versus whites. Mm-hmm. And— in all of those cases, the people who were more disadvantaged were more frugal. Yes, they, especially um, people had who had who had grown up in poverty, were expert budgeters. Oh, well, for sure. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. That's the but thing. But what we know is is that taxes the brain too, right? So there's this yes. great book by Eldar Shafir and Sendal Mully and Nathan Scarcity that shows that when when the mind is captured by scarcity, you're you're an expert budgeter. You've then traded off the capacity to to think ahead, to make a long range plan. Yes. Or to f- you know see a creative solution. 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah, just um, I want to talk about how racism and racial disparities come into play because um, I saw, you know, in an article about you, there was a thing about myths and it was this thing of like single moms are the problem, absent dads are the problem, black dads are the problem. Um, and those are were all seen as those were all debunked. So can you can you talk about I mean, obviously, this is like fully colored by racism. It is so profound. Um, a book I would recommend to you, he would be a great guest, is Ira Katz Nelson's book, When Affirmative Action Was White. So super provocative title. Yeah. What he shows is how systematically from the New Deal onward, African Americans were excluded from all of the mechanisms that created the white middle class. Yup. Huge. It Redlining. Is devastating. De- even the GI Bill. They didn't couldn't apply. Get, they couldn't get cash assistance uh, because they were domestics and farm laborers. So we we held them captive in sharecropping, giving them no other option until they finally had the good sense to flee north. Many of them, but you know, there's a there's a new series the New York Times is doing about the impact, the legacy of slavery and our economy and our country. Uh, so in some ways, we should preface anything we we do with a you know, with a um, you know, in Australia, whenever you make a public address, you always honor. I guess we'd call them here First Nations people, mm-hmm. uh, Indigenous peoples are what they're called there. And I think we need something like that. It's like we need we need some statement that we say over and over again, um, admitting to the sins of the past and honoring the people whose hard work we exploited to to make America what it is. Oh, and it's not even the sins of the past. It's it's nope, right. <laughs> it's it's coloring everything right now. I mean, it's like this thing of starting uh you know 50 points behind versus starting at zero or starting 50 points ahead. It is so like I I think people just don't know history. So they yes. don't realize like uh you know, they don't realize how how much this affects everything especially even i was thinking about this today when people cuz i'm i'm queer and i i hear people go oh well you can get married now so i don't know what you're upset about and it's <laughs> like i know i don't know i'm upset about that that happened recently and that like that still makes me nervous so like imagine you know i think i think with with racism it's probably a similar thing of like you don't see us as people and even if you do yeah. it's like it was it was after you saw yourselves as people so I mean, it's just, it's just like, I also think there's a thing where you see people at the welfare office and I think subconsciously a lot of white people are, are I mean, they go, I'm not racist, but like if they see a black person in line, they go, yeah, of course. Yes, exactly. It is also this, such a thing of like, I worked hard, so why don't you work hard? And it's like, I was about to say, I was like, bitch, you were, you were born on third base. (laughs) You were born on third base. Yeah, man. I mean, this is this is why it's uh, so great to be a teacher because, you know, one classroom at a time, we can really have discussions like this, and um, you know, we can we can produce the evidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it feels like slow progress. Yes, it certainly does, and maybe yeah. even backward. Lack of not a lack of progress, but but a moving backward. Definitely, definitely. I mean, it's just misguided, um, a lot of the stuff that's done to, quote-unquote, help. And 
I think like people listening to this episode, do your own research, go back and learn history because I don't think we're taught it in schools. And like, you just really need to understand that there's context to all of this, that you, that your assumptions about poor people and people at the poverty line are like so incorrect probably. You know, but one thing I always tell students and audiences, I do a lot of speaking. Some people, you know, read $2 a day and other books like um, like Evicted. Um, oh, I uh, love Evicted. Yes. And they say, um, what's the use? Yeah. Or, Can we really do anything? And I just have no patience for cynicism. You know, in my in my view, we have to come up with our very best ideas. They have to be steeped in personal experience. I think we have to touch, we have to touch the problem and, and let it affect us personally. But but we have to be ready and and um, armed with ideas and waiting for our opening. History does not go one way, and there there have been there are inspiring stories of wins we never thought possible. The modern um, earned income tax credit, this credit that makes sure as you work full-time, full year, you're not poor. Mm-hmm. You know, a $70 billion program. So how did it come about? One academic, his name is David Elwood. He's um, my former dean when I was at the Kennedy School at Harvard, had an idea to help the working poor. He wrote it up. He presented it at the National Governors Association and uh just so happened that a person in the audience um, was the governor of Arkansas. And uh, that governor, Bill Clinton, rushed the stage. He was electrified by the idea. And one of the first things he did as president is is to make that a reality, lifting now about 3.2 million children out of poverty each year. So that is a win. Mm -hmm. And it just started out with one person's idea and, and a lucky break. Um, God, I could talk to you for another hour, but we have to get out of the studio. Okay. Um, but thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It was a delight to talk with you and don't stop what you're doing. This was not an easy episode, but it is a truthful one. Catherine Eden's books are must reads and I could have spoken to her for two more hours and it still wouldn't have been enough. Those judging people in poverty often have little to no concept of what those in poverty's lives are really like. How hard, dehumanizing, and traumatic it is to be poor. It is not a victim mentality if you are actively being victimized. Where we look away, Catherine and other researchers look hard. Making poverty a hardship on top of poverty itself does nothing to motivate people toward economic mobility. It stops them dead in their tracks for decades to come. This is, like I said in the beginning, an actual fucking American tragedy. Bad With Money is a production of Stitcher. Our show is produced and edited by Melissa Yeager-Miller and sound engineered and mixed by Andy Christians. Our associate producer is Kristen Torres and our supervising producer is Josephine Martirana. Our executive producer is Chris Bannon. Our theme song is performed by Sam Barbera and was written by Mike Kaplan, Zach Sherwin, and Jack Dolgen. I'm Gabby Dunn, and I will see you next week.